ladies to Hebrews chapter 9. We are just making our way through the scriptures. We're on a roll now. You know, we're back. We're just moving through. And what a great song to end with. Jesus is greater. He is. And every week we're reminded of that very thing, that he is greater, that he is better. And uh, what a better thing to be reminded of, that our Jesus is the very best. There's nothing better, nothing greater, nothing um, superior to him. And here in our scripture, week after week, we're reminded of that very thing. Jesus is better. So uh, we've been gaining some ground now in the book of Hebrews. And this week, the writer reminds us in chapter 9 that we are citizens of two worlds. We're a citizen of earth because we live here, but our citizenship is in a different world. It's in heaven, and so we're going to discuss that today, but let's go ahead. If you haven't already turned to chapter 9, let's do that, and let's pray together. Lord, we do love you and praise you, and thank you, God, that you are better. We truly have reason to rejoice today, God, and we ask that you would go before us, that you would prepare the way, God, uh, as we look to your word to minister to our hearts, to speak to our hearts today. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because we are citizens of two worlds, we must learn to walk by faith in a world that walks by sight. Like Moses, we must see the invisible if we are to overcome this world that we live in. The world says, seeing is believing, but the Christian says, believing is seeing. We are to walk by faith, we know the Bible tells us, and not by sight, for faith is believing what we cannot physically see. We can't see this heavenly sanctuary that the Bible talks about, where Jesus ministers as our high priest, but we are given a replica here in Scripture that we can look at and we will see even today. So God no longer dwells in the physical tabernacle, that building that was made by hands. He dwells in our physical hearts through the Holy Spirit. The church is not a building. How many times do we say, we say we're going to church and we think we're going to what? The physical building. But in essence, church is not the building, it's the what? It's the people. Because Jesus lives inside our heart, we are the church. We're the church. We could go to the park, and we could still be the church. We could be in a house, and we are still the church. Wherever the people goes, the church goes, because we are the church. God dwells, since Jesus died, in now in our hearts instead of in a building that was made by hands. So today we will look at the fact that Jesus, his death, the new covenant that he brought through his death on the cross did away with all of the things that the old covenant had. And he brought his new covenant we know of grace. So today we're going to refer to the OC, the old covenant, and the, new, the NC, the new covenant, the old and the new, that's what we'll be looking at today. 
we will see that the new covenant with Jesus brings um, a far superior sanctuary, a new covenant full of hope, full of um, freedom, really, in a sense, because we no longer are bound to the old covenant. So once again, we will see today that Jesus is better, better than the angels, better than the law, better than, like we looked at last week, the Levitical priesthood, and better than the old sanctuary. So as I said, today we'll contrast the old and the new, the earthly and the heavenly, the temporal with the eternal. So Hebrews chapter 9, we'll see today, is divided essentially into two parts. Uh, The first 10 verses being the first part, referring to the earthly temple, and the remainder of the chapter describing the heavenly one. So today we'll see, we'll look at five ways that the old temple is inferior to the new one, and then contrasting that, five ways that the new temple is far superior to the old one. So let's take a look, beginning in verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine services and the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table of showbread, which is called, excuse me, the table of showbread in the sanctuary, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, tabernacle which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were the golden pot that held the manna Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak in detail so What was it that made the earthly temple inferior to that of the heavenly temple? So the writer, as I said, points out five ways for us today that it was inferior. In the first, if you're taking notes, it was that the earthly temple was on earth. That's the first one. It was an earthly sanctuary. It wasn't in heaven. This means that it was made by man's hands. It was on earth, made by man. As the people brought their gifts to Moses, they constructed this earthly tabernacle. God skilled the workers to do this intricate work. If you're with us here on Wednesday nights, we're going through this exact scripture, but in Exodus. So it really is quite... Uh, fascinating. I'm sure it's not a coincidence that we're here as well. Uh, So we're really going to grasp this if you're following along on Wednesday nights as well. So this work that was done in the temple was intricate. And so we learned on Wednesday night that the Lord was the one who skilled the hands of certain men and raised them up and gave them this skill of um, working on the furnishings in the sanctuary. But even though God dwelt in the sanctuary, it was still an earthly sanctuary made by man's hands. So that's the first one. Secondly, it was a type of something greater. It was, as we said, a replica. It was a replica. 
In verses uh, 2 through 5, we see that the writer lists the parts now, or the furnishings of the tabernacle, because each of them carried a spiritual meaning. They all point in to something, or we could say someone greater. Uh, In this diagram that you have, and that I will have up here as well, I believe so we can have our online audience see it as well, you'll notice that the veil at the bottom of the picture is the one and only entrance into the sanctuary, signifying that Jesus is the only way. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through Christ Jesus. As you continue now walking, uh, you will enter the holy place, and this is where you would see several pieces of Furniture. One is the table of showbread on your right, and then on your left would be the candlestick or the lampstand on your left. The seven-branch golden lampstand that would be on your left um, did not use candles. So I think saying candlestick, we, we don't understand that because we think of a candle. It actually holds oil. And the oil is how the lampstand would operate and it would burn. The purer the olive oil, the brighter the flame would um, shine. And the same is true with us, isn't it? John said this on Wednesday night and it just jumped out of the scriptures to me. The purer our life is, the brighter we shine for him. Just like pure, undefiled, uncontaminated olive oil shines bright, we too are alive when it's pure and it's not contaminated by the things of the world. We shine brighter. Jesus is the light of the world, we're told in John 8, 12. Uh, And we're told that uh, the nation of Israel, and he says in the scriptures, was supposed to shine brightly like that candlestick or that lampstand. Because Jesus now lives inside of us, we are to be the light of the world. And we are to shine light in the dark places. And the purer our life is, the brighter we shine in a dark world. As we live for him, as we love him, as we represent Jesus To the world, we shed light in a dark place. The Bible says that light reveals darkness and that we as believers are to be basically torchbearers. We are to carry Jesus into the world. The purer our life, the lighter and brighter we shine for him. Now to the right of the lampstand is the table of showbread. So I have, did you, I didn't look back. Did you show the picture of the golden lampstand? Okay, can you show that first? Okay, so here's a picture of the golden lampstand. When you're in Israel, um, you're not allowed to take pictures, although before I knew, I've been seven times, or I will this year, so I didn't know you weren't, so I have pictures. But this is from their brochure, just kind of putting that out there, so you know, um, if you've been with us, you know you're not supposed to take pictures. But you will see this very thing. You will see when you go to Israel, is anyone here going with us to Israel? 
Okay, we have one person. Okay, so you can be absolutely ecstatic. The fact, I would wish, I would pray that all of you could go. This one thing, so many things about Israel um, really uh, floored me, rocked me, opened my eyes. But I think being at the Temple Institute was probably the thing, it was like my biggest jaw-dropping moment. Because what we fail to realize is that they have everything ready. You'll see the golden lampstand that will be in the third temple. The very one. The exact one. It's behind glass. Um, but the very one. And we'll see the table of showbread. The exact one that will be in the temple. It's ready. They are ready to go, ladies. At any moment. They even have a portable um, altar that they're ready. Because what will they do? They will go back to the old system. They will begin sacrificing animals again. It's ready. They have it portable. They said within two hours they can start sacrificing animals. It is, it is the craziest, eeriest thing you will ever sense because we know what the Bible says, but yet they're so ignorant. They believe in and the, the nation is so excited. There's an air every time you go back that there's an excitement and there's um, campaigns to, for the third temple. And they, they, they're waiting and they're excited about this. But we know. We know what's going to happen in the end. We know it's going to be the Antichrist that brings peace, that allows them to rebuild this temple in three months, record time. And then we know at three and a half years what's going to happen. It's, it's such an anticlimactic feeling when you're there. You're like, wow. And then you're like, oh. It's just, I, I found myself just with so many emotions while you're there. So all that to say that... Um, I wish you all could go to Israel. I really do. It's, um, I can't, it's thinking about it, I just get so excited. I cannot wait to get back there. Um, and I think part of it is that it really is um, um, our home. You know, we will one day be in Jerusalem uh, when the new Jerusalem is formed. But um, there's, there's so much. I mean, it's where Jesus lived and breathed and walked. And so when he lives inside of us, it's like, um, a family member telling you uh, so much about where they live and you've never gotten to visit. And then when you finally do, it kind of all comes together. Um, that did not do it justice. But uh, anyways, it's amazing. So uh, there, now we can show you the golden, um, the table of showbread. So the table of showbread had 12 golden racks uh, where t 12 loaves of bread would held, be held, and it represents the 12 tribes of Israel. See, everything in Scripture has a meaning. It's so amazing. Uh, it is there, the golden um, table of showbread is there, just like the lampstand, and it's ready to go. So uh, each Sabbath, the priests, you recall in um, the Old Testament, would remove those old loaves. So they bake the loaves, they put the 12 loaves on these individual golden shelves that are very intricate, as you can see, uh, and they would not be eaten. They would sit there for a week. And then at the end of seven days, the priest would go in and they would eat these loaves uh, but they had to eat them in the sanctuary. It was a requirement. You couldn't, like, take your piece of bread and walk outside. <laughs> it was required that you eat them there. 
And uh, the remarkable thing, and I remember asking one of our tour guides before, um, did the bread get stale? And they said, no, they consider it a miracle that in seven days the bread is just as fresh as when it came out of the oven. The Lord kept the bread fresh, just like he did so with the manna. It really is a miracle. It's amazing because any one of us that would leave a loaf of bread sitting out for seven days, it would you know, get stale, right? This bread does not. So, or did not, I should say. Uh, so Jesus said in John 6 that he was the bread of life that came down from heaven. He is our physical sustenance, our physical bread. He took physical pain upon himself, upon his body, which was broken for us. If you continue walking now, you'll see the golden altar, which stood in the holy place just in front of the veil, and it divided really the two parts of the tabernacle. So the location of this piece of furniture is front and center, as it should be. (laughs) Prayer, intercession, should be front and center. And this symbolizes the intercession that Jesus prays for us, the prayers that he prays for us interceding on our behalf. This is where the priest would burn incense. Uh, It was located outside the Holy of Holies on the other side of the veil, In Exodus 45, we read that each morning, the priest and evening, the priest would uh, come in and they would burn this incense of these spices that we read in scripture in Exodus uh, that made up uh, this um, combination of spices. Now, when you go to Israel... Uh, it was a little different, though, in, than in Scripture because they say that there's 11 spices that they combine together, and they let you smell the spices, but they won't tell you all of them. They'll tell you a few of them. What, so you can smell cinnamon. You can smell cardamom. You can smell certain clove. I think you can smell certain spices, but they won't tell you because it's um, a secret. what spices they use to put on this altar. So it's very interesting. So David shares with us in Psalm 141, verse 2, that it was a picture of prayers that were ascending and descending from the throne room of God. It can be a reminder to us as well that Jesus intercedes on our behalf, but it also reminds us that This needs to occur before we enter into the Holy of Holies. I say that because the location of each piece of furniture in the tabernacle was specifically placed where it needed to be, leading closer and closer and closer to the Holy of Holies. If you look at your diagram, you'll see one on the right, one on the left, and one in the middle. What does that form? It forms, well, there it does. If you look at the whole diagram, which we're not today because our scripture doesn't talk about it, but if you look at the whole diagram of the whole tabernacle, it forms the cross. But if we look today at the three articles, um, the furnishings, it forms um, a triangle, which all point to where? It points to the Holy of Holies behind the veil. When I see this, I see the importance 
of each of those pointing to the presence of God. I see how important it is that Jesus came and he is the light of the world, that he is our physical sustenance, that his, he, he died for us, that without his death, we would not be filled and could not be the light of the world. But without his intercession, we would not enter in. And so I find it interesting that each of these is symbolic of uh, the next step, which is entering in. You remember when we were in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, it tells us uh, that we have this hope as an anchor, you recall, of our soul, which is firm and steadfast or secure. It enters the inner sanctuary or the Holy of Holies behind the curtain or behind the veil. We look back at our diagram of the sanctuary and we see that the lampstand, as I said, and the table of showbread and the altar form a triangle, all pointing to the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. As we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior and become the light, he becomes the light of our life. He's the bread that sustains us. He's the one who intercedes for us. We begin to grow in our walk with the Lord, becoming more and more like Jesus. We surrender more to him. We submit more to him. We're encouraged by the word. We radiate him. We have this hope, which all leads to the Holy of Holies, the place behind the veil that only one man, one time a year, was allowed to go. The high priest entered behind the veil only after having made that sacrifice, we know, and carrying blood that would atone for the people's sins. He wanted, or he would, then pass, th pass the table of showbread. He would pass the lampstand. He would pass the altar of incense, holding in his hand blood, the blood of the sacrifice. That's the only way, ladies, that we can enter into the Holy of Holies is when we have the blood, when we are covered with the blood, the blood of Jesus. The blood is the key behind going behind the veil. The blood is the key. The blood is a key to the presence of the Lord. We must be washed in the blood of Jesus before we enter in. We can't enter in any other way. We cannot go behind the veil any other way before being washed by the blood of Jesus. Scripture tells us that when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two. It was separated from top to bottom. That thing that separated God from the people was torn in two, creating open access, we're told, to God. This was a picture of Jesus' life that would be given, would be torn, would be broken, that he might become the bridge from man to God. The bridge that was blocked with a sign that said no access, but that sign was torn down when Jesus died, and now we can go straight to the Father. As we enter into the Holy Holies now, now that we have the blood that covers us, we see the Ark of the Covenant. And I have a picture for you. This was a wooden chest overlaid in gold, which was three feet, nine inches long by two feet, three inches wide. On top would be the mercy seat made of gold with a cherub on each side. This was the throne of God in the tabernacle where the blood was sprinkled. 
And the blood, we know, was symbolic of covering the sins of the people. The blood of Jesus not only, though, covers our sins, it washes them away. Something that the old covenant could not do. I must tell you, I don't want to say that I was... um, disappointed when I saw the Ark of the Covenant, but it was much smaller than I pictured it in my mind. I don't know why, but it is, it's small. You know, I thought, I pictured it huge, and I guess it gave us the measurements I should have known, but it's, it's much smaller than we think. Um, but anyways, you will see it as well, and inside, well, not the real one, but a replica. Um, we are told by our, last year, by our um, Guide, you know, if any of you have ever watched Indiana Jones and, you know, whatever those movies way back when, you know that there was a search for the Ark of the Covenant. Well, our guide told us that they have found the Ark of the Covenant and um, it is guarded by um, an Israeli soldier 24 7. He would not tell us where, uh, but he did tell us they found it. So I don't know. Um, you know what? I don't doubt that they have. Quite honestly, I had my suspicions. It's got to be somewhere close if they're ready that fast to get the temple and everything inside of it. They'd have to have the Ark of the Covenant, right? So um, I don't know. I imagine they keep it on the down low because it would, you know, they wouldn't be able to keep it hidden for very long, right? But nevertheless, um, they have to find it at some point to be able to put it where it needs to be to be able to perform their sacrifices. So um, I don't doubt that they haven't um, found it. But inside the ark, there were two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments. There also is the rod of Aaron's, um, Aaron's rod that budded. And then there's also manna, which we know John explained to us that manna was the bread that God provided for 40 years. Could you imagine the same meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, 40 years? Um, Like, what else can we do with manna? Let's see. You know, you've like uh, run out of recipes. But nevertheless, it means what is it? I love that. Manna means what is it? So of all the articles of the furniture in the sanctuary, they all point to the mercy seat. They all point to Jesus who had mercy on us. And if you were with us last week, you recall that we talked about mercy is getting what we don't deserve. Um, Excuse me. Grace is getting what we don't deserve and mercy is not getting what we do, right? It's not getting what we do deserve. We deserve death. We deserve punishment, but because of Jesus's grace, his death on the cross, we've been given mercy, and that's what that seat uh, represents for us, the mercy of Jesus Christ, taking that sacrifice in our place because we deserve, the, we deserve death, right? So Jesus had mercy on us. He died in our place, shed his blood, which covered the ark. The blood of Jesus did away with the law, ladies. It provided what the law could not provide. And that's what the writer is trying to communicate with his readers. So in a nutshell, all of this, the symbolism, the furnishings, the blood, the mercy seat, and the curtain were still part of the old covenant. When this writer, when the writer wrote this, the temple was still standing. So it was very real and tangible to them. So, 
First, it was in fear because it was an earthly sanctuary. Second, it was a type of something greater. And third, it was inaccessible to the people. Verse 6 tells us, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood. Had to have blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. He, uh, we need to remember that the people were unable to go into the sanctuary. It would be like um, you having to stand out in the courtyard while church service went on here inside. You could hear the music. You could hear what was going on. You could even maybe see some signs. They could see smoke. And they could hear, definitely could hear the animals, but they couldn't take part of what was going on inside. There was one tribe, though, the tribe of Levi, that was selected, that would be the one tribe that would minister, that could go in. And it was their job to uh, perform these uh, rituals. But they could, even, they could only go so far. It was one man that was selected, and only one time of year that could go into the holiest place, the holy of holies. An interesting side note that uh, I learned Wednesday night as we were going through Exodus is that you recall when Moses went on the mountain and he was receiving the Ten Commandments, the law, uh, the people obviously were growing impatient. I mean, Moses was gone for 30 days. So you could imagine they had questions in their mind. Is he alive? Did he die? Is he ever coming back? Are we left alone? This was their leader, and they were following him. So we know we're sheep, and when we don't have a leader, we what? We tend to just wander and go astray and get in trouble, basically. Well, that's what happened with them. They got in trouble because their leader was gone and his brother didn't help too much. Because when they began complaining, you imagine a million people just complaining and complaining. It's difficult. I mean, we have one person in our house that complains and, and it's hard, right? But just imagine a whole host of people doing that. It would be very difficult. So it were on him, I imagine. I mean, we can't be too hard on Aaron. Because any of us probably would have done the same thing. We would have acquiesced, wouldn't we have? Just, okay, do what you want. I don't know that I would have been the one to initiate that, like he did, but we may have acquiesced. Nevertheless, um, they became angry, they complained, and then Aaron, of course, said, all right, you know, let me give you what you want, basically. I'm done with you babies, let me give you what you want. Give me all the gold, and uh, he says that Aaron formed the calf. And um, they're God, <laughs> in which they worshiped. But when Moses came down, obviously the Lord told him, you might want to go check on your people. Um, they have gotten into some problems. So basically Moses came down, and when he saw what they had done, he rebuked them sharply and challenged them. We see in Exodus 32, 26, I have it for you. It says, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. I love this. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Putting, He said, put your sword on each side of you and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you, this is hard, 
kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to what Moses said. And that day about 3,000 people, 3,000, excuse me, men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. As I pondered this in church, it really just jumped off of the scriptures to me and, and revealed that it was one family, basically. I mean, the tribe of Levi was large, but nevertheless, it was one family that stood by Moses, that was brave enough, that was bold enough to go against the flow and to stand with Moses and to do then the hard thing. Could you imagine having to follow through with that request? To go and kill your family members? and Well, if it was family, it says son and brother. And, you know, I mean, it just, I have, wow. This is amazing. They had to, it says, count the cost. And I um, highlighted that in my Bible. Cost of what they had to do. There was a cost. And ladies, there's a cost to doing the hard thing, isn't there? There's a cost to following Jesus. It is not always easy. In fact, it is never easy to follow Jesus because it requires doing the difficult thing. And for them, it meant, um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's awful, but it really meant um, getting rid of, let's say, uh, the people in their lives that prevented them from going forward. And we can take that into our own life as well and see that there are difficult things that we need to do in our lives, things that we have to get rid of, let's say, that prevent us from going forward in our walk with the Lord and from making that bold stand and getting in the way. And, um, and I mean, which of us hasn't had to go through something like this? We all have, right? We've had to make a difficult decision. We've had to separate some of us from family that, um, where, that has um, hindered our growth or, or defiles us, let's say. I mean, they were defiled by what these people did. And they had to do the hard thing, the difficult thing. But the result of their obedience was that they were, listen to this, ordained into the ministry. They were selected into the ministry. And it, we're also told that they received a blessing. We see here, though, that when we do the difficult thing, it sets us apart. It sets us apart, and the Lord has a blessing for us. When have you done the difficult thing and not received the blessing from the Lord? Never. It's when we do those hard things, those difficult things, we obey the Lord, that we receive the blessing from him. Now, I'm going to take it a step further, and I'm going to say that when you're in the ministry, because this is talking about those that they selected to now minister, 
When you're in the ministry, there are times that you're called upon to do the hard thing, to deliver a hard word, let's say, or a rebuke in order to correct someone, uh, to stand in order to lead someone. When you want to run and hide, you're called to be bold and to stand. Sometimes you have to be alone in order to stand. You will run the risk of being misunderstood, misrepresented, and mistreated. But that's because there is a cost. There is a cost involved, and Moses knew this very well. But when we, all of us, including those in the ministry, obey the Lord and not man like Aaron did, right? There is a blessing in store for us. I can honestly say that it was when or in, I should say, those most difficult times, those most difficult situations in the ministry for myself and John that we have really reaped the biggest blessing. In the end, it takes time. But we've really reaped the biggest blessing. So we see that the tribe of Levi stood by Moses. They made that difficult choice. They obeyed God. They received the ordination. And they also received the biggest blessing. They were selected They were chosen, they were set apart, and they were able to minister to the Lord most effectively. For us, we apply this same truth. When we stand with the Lord and do what's right in the sight of the Lord, we also receive the biggest blessing, even when it's hard. The greater the cost the greater the blessing. Not only were the people unable to go into the sanctuary, but the writer points out for us in verse 8 that it was temporary. Verse 8 says the Holy Spirit, indicating this, that the way into the holiest of holies of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. The fact that the outer court was standing was proof that God's work of salvation for man had not yet been completed. The outer court was that which stood in between the people and the Holy of Holies. As long as the priests were ministering there in the holy place, the way had not yet been opened. Not only was the sanctuary an earthly one, and it revealed a type of something greater, and was inaccessible to the people, and it was temporary. Fifth, and finally, its ministry was external and not internal. Verses 9 and 10 tells us, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Verse 10, concerned only with food and drink and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. 
The sacrifices offered and the blood applied to the mercy seat could never change the heart or the conscience of a worshiper. All of the ceremonies that were associated with the tabernacle and uh, the ceremonial purifications could not make somebody morally pure. It was all external. It could not meet anything internal. They were carnal ordinances or rituals that were pertained to only the outer man and not the inner man. We too can uh, take a shower or a bath. We can get, get cleaned up on the outside and look presentable on the outside, but that doesn't change the inside, does it? It does not change the condition of our heart. Only Jesus can do that. So next we see that the writer switches from the earthly sanctuary now to the heavenly sanctuary, pointing out five superiorities of the heavenly sanctuary. The first one is, it's in heaven. (laughs) That's the first one. Verse 11 tells us, But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. The writer is restating this because he wants his readers to focus their attention on things above and not on the things of earth. The earthly temple was made with hands. It was made with material uh, things. But the heavenly temple is made by God, with godly things. It's imperfect, um, excuse me, it's perfect and it remains in pristine condition. It dawned on me as I was reading and studying this week that I never really thought about that. You know, that the temple in heaven and our, our heavenly place, like heaven doesn't ever need a new paint job, right? I mean, it doesn't ever need repairs. And it was just kind of funny as I was thinking about it. Oh, yeah. Like, it's just perfect all the time and has remained perfect from the beginning. It doesn't need any repairs uh, doesn't need to be repainted or fixed or um, anything. It's perfect. Number two, the heavenly sanctuary was able to deal with sin once and for all. Verse 12 tells us, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your consciousness from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. 
Here we see a series of contrasts between old and new. We see animal sacrifices versus Jesus' sacrifice. We see ceremonial cleansings versus the cleansing of our consciousness. We see temporary blessings versus eternal blessings. And what we see is that Jesus finished the work. He, he completed it, he finished the work, and he continues to intercede for us. Next, we see, number three, that it required, this heavenly sanctuary required a costly sacrifice. Verse 16 says, for, there, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of a tester, testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all why the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself, and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled the blood, both of the tabernacle and all of the vessels in the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things were purified with the blood. And without the shedding of the blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. There's a lot of blood here in the Old Testament. Um, But one thing that stands out to me is we normally don't think of blood purifying. What do we think of purifying? Water, don't we? I mean, water, we think of, when we think of being clean, you go take a bath or a shower with water, not with blood. But here we know in the Old Testament, it was only the blood because something had to die. When something dies, there's blood. And it was the blood that was able to purify the people or, or to take their sins away. And here the writer says that it is only the blood of Jesus, which we know that is able to do that. And that is what he provided in the heavenlies. The word covenant in verse 18 not only means agreement, but it also carries the idea of a last will and testament. So if a man or a woman uh, makes out a will, it will not be used unless a person, what? Dies, exactly. It was necessary for Jesus to die for those terms of the new covenant to be enforced or to be cashed in. In Luke twenty-two twenty, Jesus says this, This cup is the New Testament or new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. What was in the cup? It was, you know, wine, right? Juice that that represented blood. He's saying of himself, this me, I'm going to shed my blood and make this new covenant for you. 
And the new covenant we know is the covenant of what? Grace. It's that covenant of grace. Jesus willingly shed his blood for us to provide the new way, the only way, straight to the Father. Number four, the new covenant, the heavenly sanctuary, represents fulfillment. Verse 24 tells us, For Christ has not entered the holy of places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. This, ladies, is reality. We are not depending upon someone else any longer, we never did, to atone for our sins. We have dependence upon the one who already died for them, who already atoned for them. And then fifth and finally, uh, this heavenly sanctuary is better, is, is far superior because it is final. It is done once and for all. It is complete. Verse 25 tells us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, but he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of ages, he has appeared, appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Ladies, the work is finished. We know it's done. It's complete. Hallelujah. We don't have to kill anything. We don't have to sacrifice anything except for us, right? Because we are, as Romans 12, 1 says, to be a what? A living sacrifice that we get up there on a daily basis. We Can you imagine us? Can you picture yourself climbing up there on uh, the mercy seat because we need mercy? And we offer ourselves as that living sacrifice again and again. The work is finished. It's complete. There can be nothing added to it, and there can be nothing taken away from it because it's done once and for all. The writer points out the obvious differences of the two sanctuaries. He says the old covenant had to be repeated uh, again and again, where the new covenant was one time for all. He says the old covenant used blood of animals, but the new covenant used the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The old covenant covered sins while the new covenant took them away. The old covenant was for Israel only, but the new covenant was for everybody. And the old covenant, in the old covenant, the high priest would come out and he would bless the people. And in the new covenant, Jesus will come and take his people to heaven. In short, the work of Jesus Christ is a complete work, it's a final work, and it is an eternal work. Notice, though, the word appear in verses 24, 26, and 28. I found this fascinating as I was looking through it. 
In verse 26, it tells us, and you might want to highlight it, he has appeared. In verse 24, it says, he is appearing. In verse 28, it says what? He shall appear. He has appeared. He is appearing. And he shall appear. After reading this letter, the Hebrew Christians had to realize that there was no middle ground. They had to make a choice between the earthly and the heavenly, between the temporal and the eternal, between the incomplete and the complete. There is no middle road. You're either receive Jesus and what he's provided for you, or you reject it. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, recall, Whoever is not with me is what? Against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, if you are not for Jesus, you are opposed to Jesus. And if you're not working for him, you're really working against him. For the Christian, our sanctuary, our temple, and our citizenship, we know, we're told, is in heaven. And that's where our treasure is. And that is where our hope is. Hope is the expectation of coming good. What are we hopeful for, ladies? Heaven. That is what our eyes are set on the prize. Our eyes are set on heaven. That is what we hope for. That is what we long for. That's what we're promised. And that's what we carry on a daily basis. Our hope is in him and our hope is in heaven. Nothing on this earth. The Bible discourages us from holding on to things on this earth. From setting up anything here on earth. Our hope is in heaven. We are to store up our treasure where? In heaven. And that's where our treasure should be, where our hope is. The believer walks by faith and not by sight. We believe what we cannot see, and our hope is in Jesus and the fact that he's coming again for us. Amen? And we're waiting for him. You know, we um, are waiting anxiously, but yet patiently for his return. And as we see what's going on in our world on a daily basis escalating, it is like the labor pains are progressing, isn't it? And so our hope is in Jesus. Our hope, ladies, is in the finished work on the cross, and we are to keep our eyes on the prize. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do love you and praise you. And Lord, we are humbled before you. We ask, God, that you would help us to have our hope set on you today, God. That if we have come in here and we have um, just felt discouraged, God, I pray that you would renew our sense of hope today, God, that you would help our priorities to be fixed back on the one, Lord, that brings hope. Lord, that our hope would be in you, our eyes would be upon you, God, and we would look and long for heaven today. Lord, bless these ladies abundantly, and we trust you well in Jesus' name. Amen.